Dr. Connie McReynolds is a licensed psychologist and certified rehabilitation counselor with more than 30 years of experience in the field. She has a proven track record of more than 13 years of successful outcomes using neurofeedback with children and adults ages 5 to 90. Additionally, Dr. Connie has published and presented internationally on her successful outcomes in treating ADHD in children and adults. Without further introduction, I give you Dr. Connie McReynolds. Okay, so just for the sake of context, and I'm sorry if, if uh, we said a little of this offline, I first came across your work with a paper called Using Neurofeedback to Improve ADHD Symptoms in School-Age Children, which being a teacher and directing a student support program interests me. Um, and I have a student who uses neurofeedback, which is how I first got into this in the first place. I then was reading through some of, some of the literature that you have out there, and I discovered two years later, you wrote a paper called Neurofeedback, an Examination of Attentional Processes in Adults with Self-Reported PTSD Symptoms. And I thought it'd be really interesting to look into somebody who goes neurofeedback from ADHD to PTSD. Um, and then when I looked into you, you had this really buzzing um, presence, if not seemingly a business. So I was really interested in, in speaking with you. So first of all, thanks for taking the time to do that. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, I want to start with a really large contextualizing question. I, I know that neurofeedback is something of an umbrella term. I know that there's an umbrella term still above that, which is biofeedback. What is biofeedback versus neurofeedback? How do you think about the differences? And is it important to keep those in mind? It is important to keep those in mind because they are two related but different processes. So you can think of biofeedback really as, as kind of the first entree into understanding a mind-body connection that came about. And a lot of that was measuring heart rate, pulse, and teaching people that by monitoring that, they could influence that part of their body. So in other words, they could learn how to relax better. So if they were moving into a panic attack and they could learn, oh, I'm breathing shallow and my heart rate's elevated, then with biofeedback, they might have their finger being monitored a little a unit on their finger to monitor their pulse. And they might be having something monitor their, you know, their breathing. So they learn from that. And that's the bio. So the biological feedback to a person that became shortened to biofeedback. So that's been around for a long time. People are pretty familiar with that term. So when I go out and do presentations, this is really kind of where I start for most audiences, which is you've probably heard of biofeedback, most hands go up. In the beginning, when I was doing this 13 years ago in presentations, and I would say how many people have heard of neurofeedback, hardly a hand ever went up in the crowd. Mm. It's a little bit different now. The difference between the two though, is really the equipment that's being used and what we're monitoring. So the biofeedback is monitoring heart rate, breath. Neurofeedback is monitoring brain waves. So a sensor is placed on the scalp in certain locations. And, and I won't go into all of that because it gets too heavy too fast. Sure. But just suffice it to say that it's a sensor. It's a sensor with similar to maybe when you go into the doctor and have an EKG exam, they use a little sticky patch to hold the sensor on your body to measure whatever they're measuring. And this is similar. So it's a monitor. The difference is it's a monitor for brain waves. 
So EEG biofeedback is also known as neurofeedback. And so it's, it's a little bit different term than just straight biofeedback because we're using an EEG unit, electroencephalograph unit, EEG, <laughs> which literally measures brain waves. And the beauty of neurofeedback is once again, it's a feedback system. So people get feedback on how they are functioning, how their brain's functioning. And what I mean by that is it's attending, is it not attending, is it distracted? Is it losing focus, losing concentration, uh, memory problems and the like. And so in a nutshell, what neurofeedback is, we use video games, I can kind of trail off on a lot of this, but the nutshell okay. is, the sensors are reading brainwave activity that is fed into the computer. It's interacting with a computer software program that is then providing feedback to the person through the computer, through what we call video games. They're not like the video games you're gonna see online that kids typically play. And we can get into to a whole lot of game theory stuff going on out there. Hmm. But this is designed to let the person know when they are attending and when they're losing focus. Because if you're attending for children and adults who have ADHD, the games, and I use that word kind of loosely, it's really a training plan. So the training plan consists of video games that if you are maintaining a certain type of brainwave, the algorithm is measuring that against what the anticipated or hoped for outcome is. If you're not producing enough of the types of brain waves that represent attention, you're not going to win your game. Hmm. And so the purpose of that is a positive reinforcement process. To train the brain requires repetition. Most people are not consistent enough to rewire their brain. <laughs> so if you have an anxiety problem or you have an attention problem, either one of those are really interfering with your ability to rewire your brain to not have an attention problem and not have an anxiety problem. So it becomes very difficult for people who have these conditions to just kind of manually do this on their own. First of all, most people who have this don't even know what it's like to not have it. Someone with anxiety might be able to remember what it was like post or pre, rather pre-anxiety. Anyone with ADHD has no contrast hmm. to what their life could be like without how their brain is functioning. And so this gives them feedback in a nearly instantaneous manner for how they're doing. We do 30 minute sessions. I find that's enough brain training two or three times a week to be able to do and make changes. So I'll stop there in case you want to go somewhere else with this question. No, that was awesome. <laughs> I can keep rolling on this. So <laughs> No, that was great. I, I, I have maybe five or six uh, strands I, I'd love to pull on. I guess the first Absolutely. question really, <laughs> I, I think it's, it might be simple to ask. It's probably not simple to answer. <laughs> How did you arrive? Um, I assume you didn't arrive immediately at 30 minutes, two to three times a week. What was that process like? Mm -hmm. Where did you, 
was your hypothesis that it would that would require more at first? I mean, I'm interested right. in the evolution of that. Right. So I've been doing this for over 13 years um, here in Southern California. It started, I'm a recently retired faculty person at a university in Southern California. And that's really where this came from is I was running an institute. Um, one of my colleagues had been using neurofeedback in a school and had been helping children who were having trouble reading. He came to me. I was kind of new into the field about 14 years ago, new to the area here. And so after some conversations with him, I decided to explore that and then brought that into the newly formed institute that I created. And with that, I actually decided to do a year's worth of just exploration of the process. So we just opened it up to the community and said, hey, if you have children or people who have attention or concentration problems, bring them in. We're doing this. We're learning the process. There's no charge. And so that's really how I did it. And I also opened it up to veterans. So you were asking how one came, mm -hmm. they all, they came at the same time. So that process, I developed both of those at the same time because I had a particular interest in helping veterans. I had done some doctoral work at UW-Madison. That's where I got my uh, PhD from. And part of that was working at the VA in the mm. Chemical Dependency Center there and seeing how veterans struggled with PTSD. And so there was research out there that it has some potential to work with veterans. And so I just opened it up to veterans who wanted to come in too. And so really they developed simultaneously for me. Interesting. And was that program that you offered, was that naturally two to three times a week? Is that how that number came about or well, did you have really, to adjust it? Well, we tried a couple of different ways. We knew we needed at least 30 minutes because you're doing any kind of therapy. You're not going to do it in a shorter period of time than that. Uh, and we worked with a software developer who'd been around for 20 years. So um, they had some protocols that they were using and we followed that. And there was literature available on what was happening. So we really were based in evidence-based practices already and just kind of stuck with that. And at times uh, we had veterans traveling two and a half hours each way for 30 minute sessions uh, twice a week. And mm -hmm. so because of that enormous um, process to just get to my clinic, Southern California is pretty big out here. Uh, we looked at once they became stabilized or kind of um, acclimated might be a better word to it, kind of acclimated to the process after eight or 10 sessions, then what we looked at doing was bumping that up to a 45 minute session for them and trying that one time a week just to reduce the amount of travel that they were having to engage in. And ultimately I ended up opening a different clinic an hour farther out. Um, <laughs> to help them so that they didn't have to deal with this because I just felt like twice a week was better than once a week, even though we were doing longer sessions. So on occasion, if we have someone traveling two hours each way, um, you know, I'll look at that 45 minute option once a week, but um, actually we've solved this big problem. So now I can do remote neurofeedback and. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Right. Let me add that to the list of uh, follow questions. <laughs> I hope you don't so, mind me taking notes. Typically, yeah. So I prefer standardized approaches just mm -hmm. because 
of my clinical background. I'm a licensed psychologist. I've been in the rehabilitation counseling and rehabilitation psychology field for 30 years. Okay. And so, you know, for me, we just need standardized approaches so that we have protocols that we follow and there's consistency. There's uniqueness and individuality with every client because I'm doing the initial intake with them. I don't diagnose. And so I wanna be very clear about that. This is not about diagnosing conditions. I don't do that. What we do is figure out what brain processes are working well and what aren't, what are Mm. weak. And then we train for that. So I consider it more of a brain training process, more educational than I do a psychological intervention. And so I wanna be really clear about that. I may be a licensed psychologist, but you know, the master's level and bachelor's level people that work for with me and for me, um, you know, we're not doing diagnosis. They can get diagnoses somewhere else. I'm much more interested from my rehab perspective of what's not working and what needs to be done to fix it. Interesting. So I really take a strengths-based approach. So we look at what's working for them and then we find the holes. And with the holes, then we serve to strengthen that and really what you're talking about with neurofeedback is you are in some ways I borrow from some of Dr. Joe Dispenza's language and Dr. Um, Hub from 1940s, 1949, he was a Canadian psychologist who talked about neuroplasticity. So Dr. Hub was the first one to introduce that. And uh, Dr. Joe Dispenza's kind of come along and taken it to another level, but they both talk about wiring the brain. And really what they mean is repetition is how the brain learns and then gets trained to hang on to something. And so with neurofeedback, that's the basic operational facts of what we're doing with neurofeedback. We're simply helping the brain through a systematic training program, consistently administered two to three times a week. We do 20 of those sessions. And then I come back and we take a look at where the baselines were and where we are now. And do we need another 20 sessions to get to the goals that the client has set? And so really that's it. We use this process and it has been very consistent for us over the years. We can generally help most people. Nothing's going to be hundred percent, of course. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get to all these follow-up questions. <laughs> the, the goal setting by the clients, what is that intake process like? Mm-hmm. How do you, ha- do you ever have to sort of steer their goals? What is that goal setting process like? I don't because my philosophy has always been people know what they need. They just sometimes need a little help in clarifying it. And so if something isn't working for them, they know something's off they're calling me, they're needing help. They're already aware they need something. Mm. And so it's a process. And honestly, I don't need to spend a whole lot of time with people because again, I'm not diagnosing. And that's the key here. All I'm trying to do is understand from a rehab perspective, this is rehab's my blood. Mm. So it's really understanding, okay, what's working, what things are going okay and what areas are not. And they can really tell you. It's like, I'm in school. I'm a student. I can't concentrate. I can't remember. I just did an intake this week, about two days ago on a college student who has retention problems. She knows she has retention problems. Well, she has attention problems. (laughs) Mm. So what we're going to do with her is really strengthen some areas 
that need to be enhanced. So her memory's weak. So we'll do some memory training programs with her. You know, she tends to drift off. She said when she's in lectures, she loses her attention. So we'll do some training around that. So I hope that helps. <laughs> I always it, like to go on. So <laughs> no, no, no. It, that was great. Yeah, it does. <clears throat> the um, you you mentioned having a. Let me find this in my notes here. <laughs> You, you mentioned having a software designer and then you just mentioned the software program design. How versatile is that? Are those different software programs? How many do you have? Um, I'm curious sort of how flexible those programs are. Do they, I, I mean, obviously they work with children with ADHD and adults with PTSD. So there has to be some versatility or are there totally different programs for those two? Well, there's an individualized training plan. So let's just say you have a menu. So a clinician has a menu of things that based on the intake, we've identified there's some memory challenges, there's some distractibility, there's some few things like that. Hmm. Each person's unique. And so they have a unique training plan. And so we have a menu that really has um, been developed over the years of things that kind of work with people and things that, you know, maybe don't. And so that individualized approach is the training plan for each person. And there's a lot of variety in that, but in some ways things boil down to similar problems. You have anxiety, well, that's a spectrum. So PTSD is on the anxiety spectrum. People will come in and they'll talk mm. about trauma. Again, I don't diagnose. They know what their life is and listening to a few moments of what they've been through, can kind of get a feeling, is this kind of a, a recent occurrence or is this something that's been lasting for decades because they had a pretty challenging childhood? Maybe they had you know, a bad, you know, marital or partnership relationship. Maybe they had an accident. So any of those things really falls on the anxiety spectrum. So we're dealing with anxiety. Hmm. Attention really falls in kind of two categories. You have visual attention and you have auditory attention. So which do they tend to fall more into? You know, if a person say I lose track in a lecture, well, that kind of suggests that there's some auditory processing challenges. Their brain's just not hanging on to the auditory information. And then sometimes people will say, I have to record everything or I have to you know, take pictures of anything that's up on the board because I just can't hang on to it. Hmm. That those are the variations there. So there it's part of the intake is just trying to figure out what that is, what's going on and then helping get them there. So the youngest person we've worked with is three and the wow. oldest has been 91 and wow. just about okay. everybody in between. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. I've definitely hit every decade for sure. <laughs> I know you just sort of addressed this, but I would imagine with the three-year-old, there has to be a slightly different protocol. A shorter one, perhaps. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> but he was actually a fairly advanced little three-year-old. So hmm. he knew how to click a mouse. He, you know, and that's really half the battle. And he could sit for 25 minutes, which a lot of three-year-olds can't yeah. do, but he could. Wow. And his brother was four. And so typically though, children are around five or six when we start to work with them, just because they do have to be able to be redirected. 
They have to be able to sustain sitting at a computer for a period of time. But with a three-year-old, we may shorten that program a little bit until they can kind of get used to it and move themselves into a little bit longer training plan. But both those little boys completed their training plan and their parents were thrilled because they both were doing better. Hmm. Now a training plan for a three or five or six-year-old, you, you mentioned that they completed it. Um, is that indefinite? Is that completion indefinite? Or is there the plan that eventually they come back? What does that look like? With neurofeedback, the beauty is, again, we're talking about repetition. So hmm. the repetition with neurofeedback is you retrain the brain. And when the brain learns something, it tends to hold on to it. An example of that is most of us learned how to ride a bike when we were a kid. We may not have been on a bike for a long time. Some people can, you know, maybe decades. They can go get a bike and get right back on it and know how to ride it. They're not going to need training wheels again. <laughs> Their brain remembers. So I often use the analogy of neurofeedback being like going to the gym. So you go to the gym to strengthen your muscles. You're coming to our brain <laughs> gym, so to speak, to train your brain muscles. The difference being at the gym, you always have to go back with us, you don't. And so the results show that it's long lasting. The research is out there. There've been 10 year follow along studies of senior citizens and others. So there's, there's a wealth of literature out there on neurofeedback and the effects of it. Interesting. Does that have something to do with, um, with the fact that unlike a bike, you are using your mind, you are using your attention. So the reinforcement becomes sort of an everyday activity. Well, what we've had come back to me and some parents will come back six months later. Uh, one parent brought their child back 21 months later. And so, you know, let's just run, let's just see how, you know, she's doing. And so we ran it and saw over the period of time, this brain had continued to improve. Because the more you use it, the stronger it gets. And if you get someone kind of situated, kind of going in the right direction, you get things lined up in the brain so that all these processes can work together the way they're supposed to, then you're using that in tandem together. I mean, you really are able to continue to move forward because you're now using these neural pathways that maybe were there before, but were a little bit weak. In some cases, you just really kind of have to start from scratch for some folks if they just don't have enough of the brain waves that are really strong enough to keep them going. But the beauty, again, is the brain, it's neuroplasticity. This is the biggest term. If anyone wants to learn <laughs> about what's really going on with the brain, find books on neuroplasticity because they in, it will tell you what this is. So this, again, was what... Donald Hebe discovered back in 1949, talking about neuroplasticity, which is the brain's ability to continue to change throughout our lifetime. I, I often do a lot of trainings. I do a lot of trainings for senior citizens out here. And I always say, you know, the old adage where you hit a certain, you know, number of years that you've lived on the planet, and it's a downhill slide from there is just a farce. It isn't true. <laughs> The brain continues to grow, continues to develop, continues to strengthen itself. Except, of course, mm. if you have these other conditions like a cognitive decline, 
if something like that's running along, if Alzheimer's is running along. But there are studies, there's a good study that came out of the University of Florida years ago that worked with senior citizens. I think they were somewhere average 70 to 73, somewhere in there. And they did some neurofeedback training with them. It was, it was a great study that was published and it showed that they could actually turn that around. And I myself helped an 82 year old woman get hers turned around. So you, it doesn't have to be that downward slide, but it doesn't mean that everything's gonna work the way we want it to as we age. And we may need to do things to keep enhancing our brain power and our cognitive flexibility. And, you know, we always hear, you don't just wanna sit around and watch TV or, you know, not do things as you are getting older, you wanna be active, you wanna, you know, and I always, I give seniors kind of a, a way to talk about that and think about it, which is you go to the grocery store and have five items in your, in your mind um, that you're going to remember that you're going to get at the grocery store, have your list somewhere in your pocket, but see if you could remember in your brain what you want when you go into the store before you check out, check your list in case you miss something. But it's, again, it's using what we have and keeping it going. So again, I can keep going. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating. So, so I'm really interested in that relationship between neurodegeneration. Not that I know exactly what that means. I'm sort of just using that word because it sounds familiar. And challenge or lack of challenge, even that little small challenge of trying to recall mm -hmm. the, the grocery list. Um, it's, that's so interesting. It's interesting too, that the, the learned habit of put, like putting a list down, right. These sort of tools that we use actually in a strange way might facilitate our, that downward slide, as you called it. That's really interesting. Um, how much of your work, so you have those 20 sessions with those senior citizens that there, there's so many more, I'm sure having done this for a while, you could come up with all these sort of little activities that they can do to, to sort of challenge their mind. How mm -hmm. much of your work is, is on that side of the therapy as opposed to the actual hooking up to the EEG? Well, what people will say, is there anything I can do at mm -hmm. home? And it's like, yeah, there are things you absolutely can do. And I always <laughs> think that's a great question because people want to have control of their world, of their mind, and why not give them tools that they can continue to use throughout their lifetime? Mm. And so the plan then becomes, it's like, you come here, we're going to do this with you. But in the meantime, so one of the things I will encourage people to do is when you're driving to the grocery store, choose a different route every time you go. Don't wow. just keep going the same route. Yeah. And don't use your <laughs> That GPS. sounds scary, actually. Uh-huh. Don't <laughs> use your GPS. <laughs> wow. Our technology is great, but the technology that we are starting to rely on for our memory has weakened our memory because mm. it used to be, and I'll date myself here, I've probably already done that a little bit, but there was the time when you remembered phone numbers in your head <laughs> yeah, and sure. I would carry 20 or 30 phone numbers around in my head. Nowadays, mm. who does that? No one carries mm. phone numbers around in our head because we have them in our cell phone. It's too convenient. We used to remember or at least try and figure out how to drive across country. We would have maps. <laughs> we
we'd have to learn the map, we'd have to read it, we'd have to figure out what road we're going to take. Now you just plug in your destination and put it on autopilot practically. So great mm -hmm. tools, however, <laughs> we're not using our brain in a way that strengthens it for memory and retention. And so there's the rub because mm -hmm. it's a great tool, but are we really enhancing our brain power when we rely completely on that? And so yeah. I was just sitting around one day and I was just trying to think because senior citizens kept asking me these questions. And I thought, well, what is it that we used to do? How do mm -hmm. we used to operate before we had all of these tools of tech that keep us going in our day? And it's like, well, you had to think your way through things. Mm -hmm. You had to think. And sure. it's like that kept us active. <laughs> now yeah. we just plug something into a phone and we don't have to think about where we're going. It's going to reroute us if we need rerouting, which out in Southern California is a really good tool, I will tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but I grew up in the Midwest. There aren't that many roads to get rerouted on. So, <laughs> so kind of figuring out, you know, can you drive across the state without your, you know, your Google plugged in? Can you actually figure out ahead of time which roads you want to take? Mm. and go there without relying on all your technology. And I think some of that's going to even, you know, continue to advance. But these are the things. It's like, well, what do we do? What can we do that are just natural tasks that we could continue to implement in our life to help us keep going and remain sharp in our brains? That's interesting. When you were saying that about the grocery store, and the phone numbers, my mind immediately went to those studies, I probably in anthropology about oral traditions and how long of a poem people can memorize and pass these stories on. And the, I think the modern instinct was like, oh, there's no way they could have memorized that. And it's like, well, they just we haven't had to do that in a very, very long time. No, um, we can't quite get past 140 characters anymore. So <laughs> that's interesting. So, so you said that you sort of started that section though with saying that people want to be in control they want to know what they can do at home and yet there seems to be this split and maybe this is the, the sort of the mind embodiment split between sort of like i want to have something i can do at home and yet my pattern suggests that i use the gps i write down the phone number i don't think about the phone number I write down the list i'm constantly outsourcing you know these it's almost as if the brain actually you would probably know that it is that the brain is sort of looking for to solve puzzles mm -hmm. so that it doesn't need to solve puzzles, right? <laughs> right. And yet it's the solving the puzzles that keeps, in your words, the brain sharp. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Do you, do you think that people want to be in control? It seems like so many people are willing to, I, I just use the GPS all the time, for example. Well, I think once they get to a point where maybe they're feeling like they aren't, mm. then the awareness increases. And so this really came from senior citizens that were becoming aware. It's like, you know, I, I realized my memory's not as good as it used to be. What mm. can I do about this? I've just been invited to go speak to another group. Thankfully, can get back in person with sure. people. So um going into a seniors group 
to be able to talk to them about the brain functions, about neurofeedback, about memory, and these tasks, these things that we can implement into our life. You know, I think the grocery list, I remember introducing that one time to a group. I said, oh, but I'll go home and forget half my things. It's like, well, <laughs> you, have, you have the list on you. Sure. You just look at it before you go in the store mm. and before you go through checkout, you verify you have everything on it. So you don't have to go make a second trip back. There's no point in that. But how much can you remember? And mm. then the next time, can you remember more of the items than you had? And it's a great practice. It's just a simple little thing. But and I challenge anyone to do that in today's world with all the tech that we <laughs> are relying upon. A lot of people can't. Yeah, interesting. Um, so it's possible then that the whole endeavor of EEG neurofeedback could possibly, and you can cut me short if you want to, could possibly be outsourced to these sort of very mindful and self-aware activities. And yet you said earlier in our conversation that people are rarely consistent enough to be able to rewire their brains. So this, this operant conditioning that happens with the software sort of facilitates this. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit of a, yeah, it's a little bit of a rub between the two, which is, you know, if you're feeling like you've already have some decline going on, there are ways you can tackle that. Can you get that reversed? Can you kind of look at your patterns? And I'm not going to go into nutrition and all of that because I'm not a nutritionist, but there's some evidence out there that, you know, good food does help our brain. So I yes. will say that, <laughs> you know, junk in, junk out. And, mm. and you know, also the things you watch uh, could wax on that for an hour or two, but I won't. Interesting. So- <laughs> hmm. Well, now that you say that, that I keep thinking back to the the therapy being sort of an active participation, right? Mm -hmm. And then presumably the the things that you're referring to that people might watch are going to be increasingly more passive. (laughs) Uh, I'm curious about the the degree or that element of operant conditioning. Mm -hmm. If you could maybe explain in a little bit more detail, you said that the there's something you called it a video game or some sort of puzzle or um, thing that they're trying to solve. Mm -hmm. And that if they're not in the correct, the target brain state, so to speak, I'm I'm making up some of these words. Sorry. You're fine. If they're not in that target, um, then they're not able to win the game. I've heard it before where the actual, the volume and the light sort of dims. Is that happening or is, or is that, because the volume, the light dims, they can't win? Or is it just that if they leave that zone, they actually lose the game? Well, there are different types of programs, different types of software out there. And so some of the, I would say, um, earlier types uh, were you would plug in a movie and Mm -hmm. then you would have the sensors and to watch your movie, you had to maintain a certain level of attention to keep your movie going. That works, but it doesn't work well for kids because they need more interactiveness with that. Uh, it might work with someone if they've got, you know, a hundred series of a, a particular TV program and they want to watch it. You can do that. But that hasn't been the system that we've used. We've used mm. a system that has more simplex type or simple types of video games. And part of the reason for that, and I do want to I do want to go here for just a minute, Please which do. is. Um, Video gaming, and this is a little box I stand on sometimes with parents, which is 
video gaming, there's enormous amount of research out there. In fact, mm. I was just looking at this this afternoon. Uh, that really stipulates that these violent video games create a whole bunch of stuff going on in kids' brains. Um, one of the big things is that even if it isn't a violent game, if it, these games that are on the market are designed to keep kids invested in playing the video games. And part of what mm -hmm. happens in the research is there is that if it's this really high impactful kind of game where there's all kinds of stuff going on, there's a reward system to it. The reward part in the brain is dopamine. And for people who have attention problems, regardless of what the diagnosis is, in a lot of cases, they don't produce enough dopamine, which is our feel good neurotransmitter. Mm -hmm. And so if you play certain kinds of video games, your brain is actually producing more dopamine because your brain's excited about what you're doing. The downside to all of that is the person can become dependent then on the video game to create more dopamine in the brain so that they feel good. Mm. The programs that we use are shorter in duration they are less kind of triggering in that way. In fact, our, our programs don't trigger that. We didn't design them. I'm just using what we have. But it's designed to not trigger that dopamine rush because mm -hmm. that's kind of the opposite direction of what we want to do with the kiddos and the adults who come in. You don't want the brain dumping that in because of this video game. You want the brain to train these neuronal pathways to get stronger so that the brain will just naturally function better. So sometimes we have kids who are really fast on certain aspects of their brain processing and I'll tell parents like, well, you kind of got a Ferrari up there but they don't have all the gears hooked up. So, <laughs> you know, you're not gonna get too far down the road if you can't get everything lined up so that mm. they can use what they have. We have a lot of really intelligent children but they're failing in school because they can't sustain attention or focus or concentration, or they're easily distracted. Hmm. And when we help those parts of the brain get stronger, then those behaviors tend to fall away. Interesting. How do you make a game engaging enough to get them to do it for 30 minutes without triggering that dopamine response? Well, that's a good question because actually we use very short programs. So we'll have little short video games. Okay, so it's not 30 minutes. It, it, it's a 30 minute training plan, but think sure. of it like going to the gym where you're doing like five or six different machines. It's okay. like five or six different little programs that they do. So it breaks hmm. it up. So we're doing one thing over here. We're doing something on the next one. We're working on something on the next one so that it isn't driving that dopamine like some of the, and they are not high impact kinds of video programs. So some of the ones I'm not going to name anything because I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to kind of go down that road here. Sure. <laughs> Have someone call me up here shortly going, uh, we need to talk. <laughs> don't need that. Yeah. Well, let's just say just email them to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, let's, let's say that there is a tendency for some people to become addicted. Yeah. I've got kids coming in to the clinics that have these, you know, tendencies. And then I find out that the one of the parents 
might also be doing the video games right along with them. And mm. uh, so there, it's hard for people to kind of set those limits if they have this kind of a, a situation where it feels really good when you play your games and you get all these reward, you know, aspects going on. Mm. That's really triggering you know, your brain to produce a lot of dopamine. Uh, you, you can excuse my 100 level understanding of psychology, but operant conditioning would have a reward mechanism by definition, or, <laughs> or is that too simplistic? Well, it's not too simplistic. I mean, you're on the right track. It's just operant conditioning or brain training and training a neural pathway is much different than playing a high impact video game that's actually causing the brain to dump dopamine into the brain. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there's some research out there. I'd have to look up the citation. I actually was just reading it the other day that is telling us that, and they've measured it, that the amount of dopamine that gets dropped into some children's brain is similar to, you know, some really heavy duty amphetamines. Mm. It's on parallel to that when they measure these, um, biological responses in the body hmm. to certain types of video games. And so parents will sometimes say, well, how much of this should I do? How much should I allow my child? And it's like, well, don't use it for a reward system. You know, we use it for, you know, it's playtime. You know, it's hard sometimes because in today's world, technology is sometimes, you know, part of the child care system. <laughs> yeah, totally. You see that the at the restaurant table all the time all the time anymore it's kind of yeah it's kind of a sad state yeah. in my mind much of, much of this is i think <laughs> interesting yeah. mm -hmm. so, so what is so what is the reward that they're getting is it just the satisfaction of solving the puzzle is it mm -hmm. yeah they like it so um for example there is a puzzle piece <laughs> which is kind of when I first thought is like, well, how can you put a puzzle together with your brain, you know, not using your mouse or something when I first, you know, was looking at this, you know, hmm. long time ago, but you've got the sensor on. And of course there's an algorithm measuring your brainwave production of whatever brainwave we're working on um, against the algorithm of the program. So it shows pieces of the puzzle being kind of scattered across your screen and what's fascinating is if you're maintaining your attention, the puzzle pieces fly together hmm. to where then the reward is you get to see what the picture is. Oh, that's interesting. It is interesting. And it's kind of intriguing. It's like, yeah, it is. you mean my brain's doing this? So you can literally see hmm. the pieces of the puzzle coming together yeah. as your brain is manufacturing the right kinds of attention. Yeah, and I think more interesting than that, maybe that it, that it's manufacturing the right, it's producing the right types of attention because it wants to see that. That's mm -hmm. really interesting. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm -hmm. Huh. Um, aware of time. Okay. <laughs> Thirteen years ago, before you uh, certainly got it, I don't know if it was before you heard of neurofeedback, but before you got into neurofeedback and took that year of exploration, if I have that timeline correct. Uh, you mentioned that you were sort of engrossed in the rehabilitation therapy field. Mm -hmm. What was it about the idea of neurofeedback that in, 
enticed you or interested you enough to take a year of exploration? And what was it about the, the at the time, the current therapeutic field that maybe left you wanting something or, or hoping for something or some other approach? Actually, that's a great question. I'm so glad you asked it. I, <laughs> Actually, I am. Because... I could feel dopamine rushing to my brain. Like... <laughs> <laughs> so I have been in the field for a long time. And I started out as a rehab counselor in the Midwest, working with people with all types of disabling conditions, trying to help them get back to work. Hmm. And so I, I served in that field for seven years with my master's degree in rehab counseling, and then really wanted to kind of move on in my career. So um, went to UW-Madison and uh, attained my um, PhD in rehabilitation psychology. Hmm. I've always been a psychologist since then, but I've always been a teacher. And so uh, I come from a long line of teachers and I do have a, I'll put a little plug in here and take it out if you want to, but I've got a book that I'm um, planning to publish on a lot mm -hmm. of this about ADHD. It should be out in February. I'm hoping. Oh my God. Um, yeah, I'm not so, taking that out. <laughs> so when I was a little girl, my mother taught second grade in the same classroom for 32 years. And so I kind of grew up and my aunt was the Dean of a college of education mm. and an uncle was a professor and other aunts and uncles were teachers. And so I kind of came from, and just was naturally, you know, integrated into the world of teaching and um, wanting to do that. And so the beauty of the, the field rehabilitation psychology is it kind of did two things for me. One, I have an analytical mind, so I want to figure out what's going on, but the what's going on sometimes in psychology is kind of where things stop, and I didn't like that. Mm. The rehab side is you take whatever those conditions are, and then here's what you're going to do about it. And then every intake that I do with every parent or adult, those are the words that I use. We need to figure out where we are, and then we develop a strategy of where you're going to go. So it's always about figuring out what's going on, but then building a pathway to where you want to go. And so the client sets their goals. It's one of the parts of the intake. It's like, what do you want to achieve by coming to neurofeedback? Mm. And they know what they want to achieve. They know. <laughs> they can say it. And usually there's two or three very clear goals that they set for themselves. And it's like, okay, we can work toward that. Interesting. And you said that, can't remember if you said solution-based or strength-based approach, but obviously that was that would be related to them knowing what they want. It sounds like though, for through the examples that they come and they say, I have X problem or Y problem. Do they always have the thing that they want? Is it just the opposite of the problem? I have, I have problems with yeah. attention. I want to pay better attention. Well, to some degree, okay. but that's the beauty of the intake. I mean, remember I've been doing this for 30 years. So sure. <laughs> So part of this is, is listening to what they're saying, what they're not saying, understanding really kind of where's the push-pull within mm. them and how can we get them moving forward to where they want to go. Mm. And so some are more articulate than others, but it's just listening to really what they're saying and having an understanding of where they want to go mm. and then helping them build the pathway to get there. And when they do, that's when we celebrate. Interesting. To close out, I, I, I have two closing out questions. The first one is, 
how does this stuff relate to mindfulness more generally? Have you read into that area um, of maybe mindfulness meditation, even the current research about the default mode network? Another word, I don't really know what it means, but I've been saying it a lot <laughs> and it seems to impress people. <laughs> and, and even th this crazier question. So meditation, mindfulness, and that default me mode network, um, how much of EEG neurofeedback butts up against that? Well, in some ways they're very similar, mm -hmm. which is people are becoming more aware of what's working for them, maybe what isn't. And mindfulness helps us become more clear on ourselves. Our mm -hmm. mindfulness is living in the present moment. If you have trauma, anxiety, attention problems, depression, chronic pain, which I've, tried, I've handled, fibromyalgia, migraines, sleep problems, if you've got all of these things going on, that's a distraction to being able to be mindful in your life. Mm -hmm. And so meditation, absolutely can help a person develop that. But I can tell you people with hyperactive brains, ADHD, anxiety, and depression, it's really hard to corral that long enough hmm. to be able to make progress in your goals. You can do it. It's hard. Hmm. You have to be consistent. And that's the challenge. It's always the consistency. And so if someone has a lot of panic responses, it's going to be hard for them, but it doesn't mean that that's not going to be helpful because we will give them breathing exercises. We have them do breathing exercises during the neurofeedback for people who are, you know, kind of on that farther end out on anxiety. Mm. You've got to be able to have some sense of presence about yourself and mm. learn these techniques. And so I have techniques that we give to clients if they're on that anxiety spectrum. Taking mm. these breaths, being able to breathe it out, that's mindfulness building. So it goes hand in hand. Some mm. people can really go down that pathway and really make a lot of good progress. Other people find that they struggle with it. A lot of like with talk therapy, I've got a little thing I want to get in here. <laughs> because for trauma, particularly with veterans, but with anyone with a lot of trauma, talk therapy sometimes does not work and it makes it worse mm. because part of what it happens with talk therapy is you're reliving those experiences. And in people who've worked with veterans who are, run support groups, I've got a friend in the region here who's got support houses all over the place for veterans. And he'll say they go to group therapy and come back and it takes them three days to settle down again. And so he has known the value of neurofeedback for 20 years in working with veterans because it just works around the talk therapy. And there's some agencies, federal agencies and other agencies around that haven't quite gotten on board with understanding that that talk therapy for some people creates um, a negative loop, a negative feedback loop because they get triggered yeah. in those old images and old patterns and they can't get out of it very easily. Neurofeedback just circumvents all of that. They don't have to talk about it. When I do the intakes, you know, I will tell them, it's like you can share as much of that or as little of that as you want. The fact that I know that you've had trauma is really all I need to know. Hmm. We don't have to delve further into what that traumatic experience was. I know you had it, which I know that this puts you somewhere on the spectrum of the anxiety world 
and we can help you with that. And I just want to put this little tidbit in. I'm not sure, sure. where we are on time. No, you're, but... it's, it's your time I'm worried about. <laughs> oh, no, I'm fine. The amygdala system in the brain is what gets fired up. It's called the fight or flight in the brain. We've just had two and a half years of people having their amygdala system triggered 24-7 in this pandemic. Mm. We have a whole bunch of people walking around on the planet right now, I believe, with what's called kind of a chronic or complex PTSD, because we put people in an insolvable, frightening situation for two and a half years, good two years in some places, without any solution to it. And so for those who are susceptible to the fear response, that brain, the, the amygdala system actually is known to enlarge when there's undue and unresolved stress and trauma that they've experienced. Interestingly too, the frontal lobe of the brain, prefrontal, I don't wanna to get too specific here. I want someone coming in and say, well, really it was a section of the brain because I'm not speaking that, that specifically, but the frontal part of your brain is the executive functioning area. And that's our decision-making, our critical thinking area. And that can actually reduce some if the amygdala system is being activated. Hmm. And this is what's happened with trauma, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, is that part of the brain has become kind of in the turned on, we call it hypervigilant way, which means it's over-functioning. Hmm. And when it's over-functioning and it gets kind of stuck, in that position, the brain forgets how to turn that off. And with neurofeedback, I'll tell veterans or survivors of trauma, this is about reinstalling your off switch. Hmm. So that part of the brain can actually cool down and you can use it. If you're getting ready to step out in front of a bus, you want that thing working fast so you can get out of there. You don't need it operating like that 24 seven which is what happens to people with trauma. And so neurofeedback is a cool down process. So we can literally cool that down so people get their lives back. Fascinating. I, I take it, have you done it? Mm-hmm. I, I guess you would have to if you're, if you're trained <laughs> in that. So it, it interests me so much. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to just try it once. Okay, last question. Um, sure. The Zoom capabilities, the, the Zoom neurofeedback, what does that look like right now? So the remote neurofeedback is something I had been striving for literally. That's a better name. That's a better years. name than Zoom neurofeedback. Yeah. Sorry. Remote neurofeedback, right. I've been hoping for this for 10 years. And so out mm-hmm. of a point of desperation out here in Southern California, when we were looking at yet another potential lockdown and children and people were just in such a state out here of needing help. I spoke to a developer and said, we've got to have this. I cannot continue to just run these clinics and only treat people here within 20 minutes of my clinics. We've got people who are physically disabled who can't get here, but we have people who, you know, for lockdown purposes, can't get here. They need help. And so we were able to get that pulled together. And we've been doing that up and down California now. Um, for a while. And I just worked with a woman up in the Bay Area who'd had a car accident and we were able to get her back on track. And so, Mm. yeah, we wouldn't have been able to without the remote. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating. 
in the bio. Sorry. It's the same level of clinical neurofeedback as offered in my clinics. It's not an app that you just download and you do yourself, although I have no problem with a lot of that. That's not a clinical based neurofeedback treatment plan. You have to have EEG equipment that's measuring and you need assessments and you need professionals who know what they're doing mm -hmm. to be able to achieve the same quality of results in the time frame that you do it. Again, so there are a lot of programs out there that's still going to help people. But sure. the clinical neurofeedback, uh, they're on the schedule the same as any other client would be on the schedule. And, you know, we're zooming in, we're running the sessions with them. We're doing whatever we need to, to support them in that process. And we're seeing the results. That's awesome. Well, Dr. McReynolds, thank you again. And I'll be sure to, to shoot you some emails about your bio um, okay. in the introduction. And then feel free also, if you have any resources as far as links to your website or links to your clinic, I'd be happy to add those as well. Okay, that's great. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you. I feel like I just got three credits in psychology. <laughs> <laughs> I'll sign your so certificate. Yeah. I'll sign, send me a certificate. I'll sign up on it. <laughs> thank you so much. Have a great night. Okay, you too. Take care. Bye-bye.